Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of 42 to Doomsday Podcast. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And tonight we're talking about the McCoy era. So cast your mind back to 1986. Colin Baker had just been sacked and John Ethan Turner was left with no leading man and no scripts in the cupboard. Now the following year, uh, his first decision was to uh, commission Pip and Jane Baker to write Time and the Rani, the debut story for the new Doctor, and also then cast Sylvester McCoy, the seventh actor to portray the Time Lord. We now take a look back at the Sylvester McCoy years. So, in our last podcast, uh, Rob, I gave you some homework. Actually, and you gave me some homework so we could uh, bone up on the Sylvester McCoy era again. Uh, how did you go with that? Um, well, the assigned homework, I failed miserably. As it turned out, I did not have a copy of Paradise Towers. Oh, could have asked. I could have. Uh, and uh, I didn't uh, get around to watching um, Ghost Light. But it, what I actually did was uh, I watched... I watched uh, Remembrance of the Daleks, and I watched Dragonfire, which I think are comparable stories to the ones that I originally was uh, was asked to was tasked with uh, with watching. So as I said, I um, I watched Dragonfire, and then straight after I started, I watched Remembrance of the Daleks, and um, I'll get to my opinions on those and, and what I think they say about the era as, as as such. How did you go with your viewing? Well, I actually was a bit of a stickler, and uh, I sat through Sylvan Nemesis. And I also uh, watched Curse of Fenric, although I did cheat on that and watch the movie version instead. Yeah, Silver Nemesis. What can I say? Well, how does how does how does watching Silver Nemesis highlight the the because the McCoy years, you know, have come in for a great deal of stick over you know the intervening years. Yeah, I remember I remember during the nineties being on Records Doctor Who, and there were some died in the wall you know diehards who just loathed the era, loathed Sylvester McCoy. But I mean, every year it has its good and bad aspects. How does how does Civil Nemesis, without you know going into a review, obviously, how does that stand up? And and what does it say to you about sort of the the, the I suppose the negative aspects of the era? I think the negative aspects of the era relate to you've only got twelve stories over three years. Uh, Silver Nemesis, watching it again. Remember your tirade, your your verbal apocalypse that you launched on Delta and the Bannerman a few weeks ago. Yes. Yeah. Well, all I was doing in my head was replacing the words Delta and the Bannerman with Sylvan Nemesis and replacing Don Henderson with Fiona Walker. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. But let's focus on the good things. Um, it was three episodes, so it was fairly quick to get through. <laughs> that's, that's welcome, basically. It's, yeah, it was... Yeah, And uh, Gerard Murphy, who played um, Richard... I thought he was quite good. It's a shame he recently died, but um, I thought yeah, he was he quite good. Yeah, he was only 60-odd. Um, I thought he was, out of all the uh, the guest cast, he was the one who really rose up to the occasion. There's a couple of nice explosions. I'm really scraping the barrel now. It's 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 interesting because Silver Nemesis and Remembrance of the Daleks are basically tagged as having roughly the same plot, yet the execution of both are basically polar opposites. I mean, you look at... I mean, I. Whereas you say Silver Nemesis is awful, um, I, I watched Remembrance a few nights ago, and I, I loved it. Well, watching Dragonfire... Oh, actually, actually, let's even take it back further. I mean, I watched Delta, obviously, as I memorably explained some time ago. Uh, and then you you watch, you watch see Delta and the Bannerman, and then you see uh, Dragonfire, and then you see Remembrance. And you go, Delta is awful. Uh, Dragonfire is, is not too bad. It's certainly not great. And then you watch Remembrance, and it's it's just a quantum leap, even you know yeah. a, st- a, a step change in quality. And you wonder, well, what, what what was the cause of that? Was it was it the fact that you know Andrew Cartmill came on and basically took took charge of the scripts from from the second story onwards? And even though you know, you, you, I mean, you had that you had his hand. I mean, he he came in wanting to every every script editor has a vision. Every script editor has a vision. I mean, Barry Letts. Uh, and uh, and Terence Sticks, 
they, they wanted to sort of, I suppose, during the Pertwee years, in, in a sense, reflect Britain or the state of Britain uh, in the show to an extent. And then you've got, you know, Holmes and Hinchcliffe and, and, and Holmes, they were sort of riding on, replicating, you know, the, the classic Hammer horror films and the, and the 1930s horror films uh, in the show. Uh, and then you get a Cartmel who was sort of big on, I mean, as you said many times, uh, you know, the graphic novels, the graphic novels of the 80s uh, that, that had sort of come into that medium, the comics medium, and, and you know, really changed it a great deal. And you see, I mean, you do see a progression. I mean, looking at Dragonfire, you've got Ace and you've got um, uh, Mel. And Mel actually looks out of place in that story. She clearly belongs to a different era of the show, which is a more simpler, more childlike era. The 60s. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, her yeah. response to the threats that you get is to either scream. simper a little bit or scream. Yeah. Whereas you look at Ace, and I mean, Ace is essentially Cartmel's sort of creation. Uh, with you know, with a couple of other of the writers, and uh, look, I mean, I suppose some of her teen, so-called teenage lingo or slang is is pretty laughable now. I mean, at the time, I suppose it was a genuine attempt by the show to embrace some of the audience that was actually watching it. All three of them. Well, I mean, the ratings the ratings were poor, but I mean, you you, you saw you saw that. Um, I mean, Ace had a past, whereas Mel is a blank slate. Before she turns up on the show, her, she, she has no she has no history, she has no no past. But at least you can see that with with um, Cartmel in charge, and he's, he's brought around him a group of writers who he knew. I mean, the writers that he brought in had not written for Doctor Who before, mm. and these were people who, like him, had you know sent in you know spec scripts to the BBC uh, in the hope of you know getting getting work or being commissioned or stuff or stuff like that. And he'd met some people, Aranovich. Um, and Malcolm uh, Knoll, Malcolm Knoll, exactly. Ian Briggs, and, and yeah. These, yeah, and he brought these people on, and there was a sort of a, a collegial atmosphere, I suppose, where they're all working together to 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 to, to bolt onto the show something you know different, something that would you would take it away from where it the bit of the, the rut that they've basically fallen into. And I th- and I think and you can see that working through Dragonfire. I mean, Dragonfire's. I think a lot of the problem with with some of. Uh, the McCoy, a lot of the problems with the McCoy era are down to production. That it was, as as Cartmel has said, they were basically getting the same budget year in year out, and so inflation was eating into it. So they weren't basically able to spend money as they as they wanted to to, to meet the, the demands of the script. And Cartmel has said that J and T was a wizard in terms of getting the you know getting the budget right. But even with that, if the if the production decisions weren't in sympathy with the script. Then it's just going to look it's going to look bad on screen. So you look when I mean, you watch the the so called cantina scr- uh, scene in Dragonfire, and it is I'm honest to God, it, it, there must be, there must be at least three hundred spotlights on 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 the on the set. Yeah. It is just it looks like a a set. It doesn't look like a lived in area that people use. It looks like a, a collection of chairs and tables against a really bad backdrop, and it's horribly lit. It's not a cantina scene. It's a canteen scene. Exactly. And with milkshakes. Yeah, it's terrible. I think I think you touched on it there where, you know, in my opinion, is the Cartmel era has some really good ideas, but it's the execution just doesn't pay off. And unfortunately, the, the things that don't pay off stick in the consciousness and sort of have a negative uh, impact to the rest of it. I mean, when you think um, 10 or 11 years before, during the heyday of the Tom Baker era, the show could do dark and moody and brooding and uh, all the things that I think Cartmel aspired to. But for whatever reason, Hinchcliffe uh, was able to get a production crew around him that was sympathetic with that, that had directors who understood the medium or understood Doctor Who at least. I mean, and this is the thing, uh, this is uh, the problem with bringing in new people. You know, I mean, you get a, a whole slew of great ideas, but if you don't get a director or, you know, even a, a lighting bloke who is sympathetic to what you want to do, and who, then you're screwed, basically. And and it's a real pity because I mean uh, Dragonfire is is not awful and it, I mean you compare say Kane versus uh, Don Henderson's character and they're essentially f- fulfilling the same function, but the the performance from the bloke who plays Kane, it, it's 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 not Shakespeare but it's a better performance, and it's one that's in sync with the you know the production around him. But Don Hend- Don Henderson was off on a frolic of his own. I mean, he, I don't know what he was doing. No, he's he's passed away, hasn't he? So the dead can't sue. 
I mean, it was a terrible performance. But Fiona Walker's wasn't much better. Yeah, so it's just it's just interesting that in the same season where you can get um, Remembrance, and then two, I think two stories later you get Silver Nemesis. Again, as I said before, that's ostensibly the same plots. The, the big baddies have been lured into their own defeat, you know, orchestrating their own demise. Um, but you you just get uh, you get a whole different uh, look and feel to the productions. It's it's very different. It's very odd. I think with Remembrance, a lot of things clicked. McCoy got his act together, literally. Um, poor old Bonnie Langford had gone. And as you said before about Bonnie Langford's character, I mean, the only thing we knew about her was a BBC press release. I'm a computer programmer from Peace Pottage. That's it. There was nothing else. Um, Sophie Aldred was starting to feel her way through. Uh, the direction is really, really good. Uh, music is appalling, but some bits work. No, some bits do, but I mean, you can't. Electronic music has its place. It does not have its place in Doctor Who. I no, especially when Kef McCulloch, or as I call him, the Hammer, uh, is is, <laughs> is. I know techno music was all the rage back in the late eighties. Um, but every action scene was just orchestral stabs all the way, th- all the way through it, or drum machines, and it just doesn't add anything. So we've um, we've had a, we've had uh, Sylvester McCoy's come in. He's basically got nothing to work with with Tom and the Rani and it shows. And Tom and the Rani's, it's just, it continues the trend of bad first, you know, stories for new, for new Doctors. Um, and so Cartmel come in, comes in, begins to, I mean, he has a falling out with, with the Bakers. I mean, he, he has a vision, they have a vision. They don't match. <laughs> they don't match. He wants something that's deeper. They want something, they, they want something that actually just gets on the screen. And to, I suppose to J&T's credit, uh, I mean, he's, he's taken, taken a risk. A little bit, by get, well, a lot, of, a lot of bit actually, by getting Cartmel on mm. with no real, no previous, uh, as such experience, um, and so Cartmel, you know, shapes, begins to shape the the last two seasons of the year, and as you said, there's a, there's a great change there, and the the whole thing about the, I mean, he's we mentioned this before, talking about graphic novels, I mean, graphic novels in comics uh, during the eighties, I mean, I I, I worked in a, a a comic shop in the mid nineties, so I had exposure to all these back issues and stuff like that. I mean, you could... It was... I think what he was going for uh, and what he was trying to take away from the graphic novel approach was you had these ordinary individuals in an extraordinary setting. So you had story uh, British comics like Hellblazer where you've got a, you know, a man named John Constantine who uh, is, is a magician. But it's it's very much a, a down-to-earth sort of... Um, you know, his family is involved. It's the mean, gritty streets of London... And it's and you see a little bit of that in what um, in Cartmel's bringing in regards to again you've got someone like Ace who's who's ordinary but is put into a, an extraordinary situation and you know that she's got depth and a, a background and she's got issues and a lot of these ca- comic characters in these graphic novels had had real world issues I mean and you could see that in the attempt to, to do what they did with Ace. Mm. Uh, and, and and that was seeded all the way through the last two two seasons, and even looking at Dragonfire and her her scenes in particular, where you sort of get her sort of musing about and reflecting on problems that she's got with you know family and, and all that sort of thing, and and uh, she's a disaffected teenager. I mean, and, and again, you compare her to what Bonnie Langford ha- had to put up, and you know Bonnie Langford is a, a is just an invisible woman. She, there's nothing to her the character that she's asked to play. Uh, and I th- and I think the 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 the, quali- the, the change in quality in the, in the last two seasons is in some way reflected in the fact that uh, that Ace, the identification viewer for the audience, has some depth, uh, has some back history to her that you could you could sort of latch on and, and feel some sympathy towards. And I think also the story arc of her character development was, in some ways, quite uh, revolutionary for television at that time. Now we're used to it. Uh, I remember watching it in, on its original transmission and was sort of slightly annoyed they were focusing on her, uh, I suppose, because the story art concept wasn't really uh, done in the late 80s of television landscape. But now I can appreciate it a lot more, uh, especially if we've been watching the new series and other series as well with story arcs as well. I mean, you can't, I can't say for certain, but RTD and his creation of Rose and her background 
there's a lot there's a lot that you you see in this, in in uh, in Ace as well. You know, the, the same sort of middle class or lower middle class background, sort of at, at the beginning has no real purpose in life, just sort of you know motoring along. And then the doctor comes along and, and whisks them away, and um, you see, you see his impact on them, and to an extent their impact on him. Mm. So I just mentioned uh, beforehand my good things about Silver Nemesis. Uh, what were yours? Well, my good things from Dragonfire were that you could see where the show was wanting to go with Cartmel uh, at the helm, at, at the script editing helm. So I mean, if you were watching back, uh, I suppose uh, in the in eighty seven. Um, you would have walked away with a little bit of optimism that after a very rocky start, um, there was a, a fresh team on, on board the TARDIS, and, and it would have been you would have walked away with, with some hope that after a bit of a debacle, think, things were on the right track. I didn't have any hope until I saw Remembrance. You had more hope than me because I certainly had none. I have no recollection. I mean, none of the ructions that were going on in the UK with regards to you know fandom's views on. On the show, because my sole uh, uh, information source was DWM. Ah, and course, yeah. I mean, I had no access to the internet or anything like that. I mean, I didn't get onto message boards until I started university in 1990. So that was all completely new to me. The McCoy haters and all that sort of thing. So I, when um, I, I didn't know anything about all this, all this hate came later. I just knew watching the show that it looked different and i was a bit taken aback by the performance that mccoy gave in time in the rani but i mean looking at, at dragonfire you could have you could have walked away and thought hmm interesting and this you know i it was good it was good it was okay but not great not great but then remembrance the thing i took away from remembrance was that the supporting characters who were a bit of a mess in dragonfire were seemed to be to me anyway fully realized rounded individuals and we were looking at a snapshot of their lives over probably a couple of days but you know uh, the group captain gilmore and the two uh, scientists the two female scientists they just appeared to have you know proper characters they appeared to be real people to an extent as much as you can get on television uh and uh, the, the the sergeant sergeant smith Seemed to be, you know, a well-intentioned individual who, you know, led down the wrong path, and all these people, and that was, and that was, that was the thing I took away from Remembrance that, you know, apart from the what Aranovich was trying to do with the Daleks and all that sort of thing, that the people who we were watching were real people to an extent, to an extent, and I hadn't seen, I hadn't felt that way about Doctor Who for, you know, a number of years. I mean, I, I, I didn't get that feeling in the Colin Baker years. And you certainly didn't get that feeling in McCoy's first year, and it, you know you sort of got a flavour of it in the Davison years, but to to get that the supporting cast their due, they were they were pretty good. They were pretty good in Remembrance, and it it elevates it a great deal. So that's what I took away from Remembrance. Some of the good things. Yeah, it was definitely a uh, it was a revelation almost, wasn't it? The just the change in the. Um in in the store you know in the whole production values and just the whole tone of it had just shifted from an omni shambles the year before to really one of the best stories in in the original series run i have a lot of a very big uh, soft spot for remembrance i think it's great yeah no, i think it's a lot of fun i think it it, it again it, it deals with some themes i mean the whole racism thing i mean it effectively i mean there's 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 the sort of extraordinary element of it, which is the Dalek Civil War. The Daleks themselves, of course, who are you know are creations of racism, basically, are fighting amongst themselves. You know who's more pure than the other. Mm. But then there's the sort of there's the down at our viewing level racism of the, and it's it's sort of almost casually uh, dealt with, but it is definitely there. The no coloured sign, uh, you know, Radcliffe, you know, talking very Mosley like. Um, about you know humanity needs a, a firm guiding hand and, and etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, so I mean that, that was a thing I think that, and we saw a lot of that during during the rest of the the rest of the show I mean you, you look at Curse of Fenric which is a, a real favorite of mine uh, you know the, the whole thing about war and and, and uh, you know the, the the public image that's banded about about war, these days, it's a, you know it's a noble sacrifice that men go off and you know some come back and, and and some give up their lives for a greater ideal. But when you but when you get down into the trenches, war is hell. 
War is, is a dirty, disgusting, hateful, terrible business. And you saw that in uh, the, the Reverend's, you know, great... The, the eulogy. The turmoil. Yeah, it's exactly. Brilliant. The turmoil that he had. And you wouldn't have... Got, you, I, I can't... You couldn't... You did not see that before, before, in the 80s. It just... It wasn't... Sayward wasn't about that. No. He's an action-adventure man and not really much else. No, and it's to Cartmill's credit and to the writers that he he and JNT. I mean, JNT, we JNT gets shoved to the side sometimes. We must remember that JNT hired Cartmill on, and as Cartmill says, JNT showed a great deal of loyalty to him. You know, and we've and I've frequently said that JNT wasn't really much of a you know an idea, a script writing ideas man, but I mean, I suppose if the person that he took on showed loyalty to him was dedicated to the show as much as he was. He was prepared to give them a go and let them run with their ideas. And you don't see him stepping in, and I've never heard him stepping in and and uh, overruling any of the ideas that, that Cartmel sort of brought to the table and brought to the screen and brought to the scripts. So, I mean, JNT gets a big tick from me for this particular era. Just staying out the whole process. Well... <laughs> You could, I mean, you can put it like that. That's true. That's true. But I mean, it, 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 I don't think he was particularly absent. You know, he, he was an absent uh, guiding hand as such. Curse of Fenwick. It's like a, it's like a fine wine, in my opinion. It just gets better with age. It, oh, I love Curse. Yeah. I absolutely love it. You mentioned before about you know the vicar Nicholas Parsons, who in the UK had a fair amount of baggage because he was a, a, a quiz show host. Um, he was stunt casting that actually worked, where Beryl Reed didn't work. He actually worked. Mm. He, he gave a great performance in that. Very sympathetic. It's a very sympathetic portrayal of a man, uh, as I said before, that you know, he, he's faced with just, just this massive conflict that is challenging his his religion. I mean, and it's that classic, you know, if God really loves his creations, why would he put them through this? What what do bad things happen to good people? I mean, and as a as a as a, I mean, how does a priest reconcile that? I mean, the church church has its teachings on on war and all that sort of thing. But when you get down to it, war is a meat grinder, and you know very few of its participants walk away unscathed. No. And to be, and, and to try and sort of explain it, justify it to parishioners, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, must be a daunting task for you know for anyone, let alone a priest. I bought the video to curse, and the, my abiding memory of it is the scene, I think it's the episode two cliffhanger, where the wheelchair-bound scientist just, he stands up. Yeah. And McCoy sort of realises, oh, hang on, what's going on here? And and, he, and, he, and the, the scientist says, uh, I think he says, we play the game again, Time Lord. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, you know, and you, to all those people who, who, who don't like the McCoy era and give it plenty of stick, I mean, do you not have a soul? Do you not respond to that sort of... To that sort of heightened drama, I mean, it is melodrama. You know, it's it's not based on any particular reality, but it is bloody entertaining. And it, it, it for me anyway. I mean, I like that sort of thing. It grips me and it, it took me along. And uh, Curse uh, is is definitely a favourite of mine. And it, as I said before, it, it's just those themes that um, the Cartmel had introduced. I think it's another production where everything just clicks. I think the location filming help, being shot all location really helps. Mm. Really helps it. The weather was so bad; you can see the rain in different in shots. Different shots, shot, yeah, just, of the same scene. Yeah, it so. just helps. You know, it helps the whole tone of it. And BBC always does period drama as well, anyway. So uh, it's got a bit of horror. It's got a bit of spy thriller in it, for example. Um, yeah. Episode three cliffhanger was episode one where the because um, I watched the movie version just blurred into one. But all mm. the hemovores coming out of the ocean, very similar to the sea devils. I think Doctor Who works when... I mean, I know it's, you know, it's science fiction in, in inverted... In air quotes, but it it's not really science fiction. I think it works really it works best when you've got a horror element running through it. And I know it can't be that you know week in week out, otherwise people will just walk away. But I, you, you things like uh, Curse of Fenric, Ghostlight work because there's that atmosphere of unease generated. I mean, I respond to that because I, I you know I, I read 
a deal of horror and I write I write horror shorts fiction so I, you know I'm on the on the lookout for that sort of thing um but you know curse as you say it's it's a it's a mixture of, of genres it's military it's spy it's thriller and it's horror and you you sometimes you put all those things into the mix and it just becomes a horrible mess but um you know at that stage because we're into season 26 at that stage you know the production team knew what they were doing and it, as you said, being, it being a location shoot helps it immeasurably. I mean, if Dragonfire had been a location shoot, it would have been helped immeasurably. So with the Happiness Patrol, I think if the Happiness Patrol was a location shoot, even Paradise Towers, to some extent, uh, might have helped it. I mean, if Paradise Towers had been, from my memory of Paradise Towers, it's you know it's obviously all studio. But if that had been set in a grotty, high-rise you know apartment building that nothing worked, the lights were flickering, there was water leaking in the background, there was a you know a funny smell that people commented on, the doors never shut properly and there were strange noises in the stairwell. I mean, that's fantastic. I, I, you know, you can respond to that. But I mean, if, you, if you're looking at studio flats that sort of wobble when you touch them and the light, again, the lighting is unsympathetic and, and Kef McCulloch has farted out <laughs> a terrible score. You're still being too generous about that. <laughs> Poor old true, the hammer. <laughs> it is bloody awful, Jesus. And and with Paradise Towers, the original uh, composer they replaced his music with Kef's. And I heard some of the uh, original composer's uh, music, David Snell, I think his name was, and it was quite. Um, it was a bit quite morose, but it was a complete contrast to drum machines, orchestral st- stabs. Um, drum machines must die. Uh, they have their place. Uh, and they do work well in some music, but uh, not, as you said, not on Doctor Who, uh, because that actually dates it more than anything else. Yeah, it does. There's, there's a school of. I mean, I, I know it, it would, it would never fly. There are plenty of halfway decent fan composers out there, you know, who love sort of fiddling with music. It would be really nice to sort of hear a that's synced in with the uh, with the, the, the episodes fan replaced music. For those things, because I mean, those those uh, soundtracks uh, do add to the detriment of those episodes. The um, latest Doctor Who proms had the, the the classic music suite, which I talked about last podcast. But they they orchestrated a section from Curse of Frederick from Mark Ayres music, which was good anyway. But that just lifted it again. They played the the scene where you know Ace is going, didn't know it was just my mum from episode four, and that just lifted it. I'd love them to get, you know, I think some of the podcast, I think it was Blue Box podcast that wouldn't mind going back and rescoring uh, a lot of those McCoy stories. Mm. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Not going to happen. No. Sadly, no. but, uh, you know, I call on I call on all fan composers to pull your finger out and do it. Just for me. Just do it for me. So what about stories like Battlefield, for example? I, I think Battlefield originally was supposed to be three episodes all on location and the... Uh, they added an extra one, which I think makes it suffer a bit. I think it actually doesn't work in some ways. Probably a bit too ambitious, isn't it? It is too ambitious. I mean, it again, comes down to budgetary problems. And, and there were some, some lazy things there, you know, like the Doctor at the end of Episode 4 saying, oh, who wrote the note? Oh, it was me. Just to resolve a, a plot situation, which I thought was a bit lazy myself. Yeah. I mean, if they'd, uh, if they'd gone for an atmosphere or a tale that was more like the Demons... Mm. Uh, you know, sort of magic or the occult in the English countryside. Um, it it might have. I mean, there was a little bit of that, but I think there should have been a stronger element to it. I think that might have made it work a bit better. But um, I mean, you know, a, a good try. But I think I mean, from my memory of watching it, some of the production again, some of the production values were fairly shambolic. And look, as we said earlier. The BBC, the budget allocated to, to the production team was minuscule to start off with and just got less and less as time rolled by. And I'd, I'd take my hat off to them that they were able to get something onto the screen, but it did nothing at times, I suppose, to increase the opinion of the people in charge about the show. And, of course, the ratings uh, were awful uh, for most of the run uh, and collapsed basically in season 26 i mean season 26 had no publicity uh i mean i think there was one i do remember seeing on a on a tape one trailer for battlefield there's no definitely no radio times and there was never radio times cover back then those days but 
there wasn't hardly any publicity at all, and I think they had to redo a uh, a mid series launch to get it to get some sort of publicity happening. Which, which and it did work a little bit. It did work. There was a bump of about a million extra viewers for you know survival. But I mean, when when a show has so little it occupies occupies so little space in the TV, you know, the transmission lists. It's only on for twelve weeks. Mm. Then you need to give it a decent launch to get it you know, in the public mind so that they come back week after week. And it just didn't happen for season two. And, I, you know, if I'm sure the people in charge, you know, they had their own agenda, of course, and McCoy, McCoy was signed on for three years and they've gone, well, this is the beginning of his last year. We know that the show's not coming back. Why are we throwing resources at publicising this? And it's a shame, though. Yeah. It's a shame because it's definitely the last, the best... The best season in many in many a year. Oh, I agree. Season twenty six was very consistent in in what it was trying to do. I mean, look at the stories: Battlefield, Ghostlight, Curse of Fenric, and Survival. There's some there's some strong stories in there. Not world beaters. I mean, Battlefield's not a world beater, and Survival uh, Survival is a decent send off, I suppose. But I mean, the two middle stories: Ghostlight and Curse of Fenric. I I really enjoy. I really enjoy. But um, yeah, I mean, it was and it was a sign of. I would have liked to have seen the team able to sort of just one more year, um, and of course, I mean, there's it's well known what they had intended. Big finishes have produced those scripts. Uh, a couple came back and sort of guest guest script edited them, and I think he uh, wrote one or two or completed one or two for, for the production. But um, it's not it's not fair to say that the show was cut down in its prime. But I think the extra three years that it, it was given, uh, almost through inaction, really, from the BBC, <laughs> you know, that we sort of, oh, we didn't really want it to come back, but it's come back, so okay. But I, I think I think the the three years are justified, and I think there were elements there that were that were reflected or picked up in via RTD that he picked up some of the storytelling that Cartmel had introduced. And uh, if that's uh, and that's a, that's a reasonable legacy, I think that's a reasonable legacy to, to say that you've helped influence the show's revival sixteen years later. One thing I've noticed about a lot of the Cartmel production is uh, on the DVDs in particular is the amount of deleted scenes they have. Like some cases, it goes for twenty five minutes on some of the stories. So my question is, why weren't they editing these out before they went to production? Like what on producers run, for example, why didn't they have the stopwatch and go, Oh my god, we're over by twenty five minutes on this particular episode. We've got to be able to go back and trim it before we go in before we start shooting. That's what I can't work out. It it is hard to fathom how that can that can happen. I mean Cartmel in, in one interview he gave for um, to Time Space Visualizer, which is a Doctor Who uh, fanzine from New Zealand, he says um, that you know, a, a page of scripting is usually equal to to one minute of of TV time, and um, you know they did try to time it as best they could, but it it just didn't work out. And so, you know, sometimes that's down to this: you got you got new people on the show who aren't haven't come to grips with how a script will convert to 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 production time or you know directing time and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it it is it is a little bit. Uh, uh, amazing to consider that you know in some instances there's an extra 25 minutes chopped out of a story um, and it's a, you know it's amazing in that regard because you know that's a lot of waste that's a lot of time and money spent that will ne- never made it to the TV so in that regard for a show that was as budget, budget conscious as Doctor Who was in its later days is is unforgivable Uh on the flip side, it enables us uh, now, you know, in in these DVD times, to be able to to see all that sort of footage that is, has been saved. I think the things that frustrates me the most about that is uh, I'll go back to the experience I had watching Silver Nemesis. The, the the subplots regarding the skinheads and Dolores Gray, whoever the hell she is, um, they could have been easily excised out. I know with the Dolores Gray thing, though, he they probably couldn't because JNT had gone out wheeling his publicity machine about she's going to be in there so they probably you know in retrospect they probably couldn't have canned it but really they should have um lots of dvd on the the dvd lots of scenes there they could have easily incorporated back in and actually would have made the story a little bit better it's um it's it's as you say it's it's just i think it's bad production decisions that that have led to silver nemesis not being particularly good but i mean 
and 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 this is I mean this is from the viewpoint of you know middle aged men looking back and going I'm not satisfied with what I'm watching I mean I, I suppose as kids at that time uh, would have you know probably lapped up silver giants wandering around the English countryside doing strange things being killed by but gold coins poisonous who knew that gold coins were so poisonous and uh, especially the uh, gold ones with uh, chocolate inside but at least it wasn't the Willy Wonka golden ticket that uh, were killing him in Nightmare and Silver no no but I mean that's just that's a demonstration of just slavish devotion to continuity and it's it's just the end point of that where you know we, we hark, they're harking back to Revenge of the Cybermen oh wonderful you know the, the Cybermen were killed by gold and you've got Cybermen wandering around Voga not being affected by the mere presence of gold or gold dust as such, and then someone you know flips a gold coin towards them and they die. That just that's that makes no sense. The reason why the Cybermen weren't affected on Vegas because they had their hands on their hips. They were indomitable. They had their hands on their hips and they were proving to the gold. It was a, it was a face off between silver and gold. It was a special filtration system that I was only engaged. <laughs> only engaged when the hips are clasped. The South African accent kicks in. talk about the McCoy era without talking about the man himself what did you think of a Sylvester McCoy's casting and the progression of his character and characterization through to the end McCoy's casting was an interesting process he was screen tested I think he was the first doctor who was ever screen tested I think and he was screen tested against three actors who was sort of uh, rigged in a way. In fact, it was rigged. Have you seen the screen tests that were on the Time and the Rani DVD? No, I've got to confess that I don't actually have Time and the Rani. I'm a bad fan. Well, here's a good day for you, Rob. I've just bought you a copy. There you go. I'll send it to you now. I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed <laughs> in a way that I don't think I'm meant to be overwhelmed. You don't need to see Enemy of the World. You need to see Time and the Rani. Anyway. What's the process like? I mean, you've seen it, obviously. What's What was the process like? It was him reading uh, scenes with Janet Fielding. One was like a goodbye scene, which I think they, they filtered back into the Dragonfire scripts when they couldn't think of a good way of getting rid of Bonnie Langford. That was very abrupt. Yeah. It was written on the back of a napkin and it shows. And then it, there's another scene uh, where Janet Fielding's playing like an evil evil lady so um out of the three actors who were there he was one of the best ones but when, but but when you think about it i mean by the time we get to Dragonfire, it's a much more toned down performance mm. really and i think he was responding to the direction that he was getting in the scripts um i mean even even delta which i hate repeating myself but it's a piece of crap even in that there's less gurning and more a little bit it's it, the gurning becomes more playful i think yeah and and there still is, uh, I mean, there still is the, the sort of the madcap McCoy, but there's also a quieter McCoy, and it's just down to him not really having any direction given it appears anyway. You can see some hope in this performance, in in Delta and the Bannerman, and as you said, Dragonfire. But to me, it starts cementing for in remembrance onwards. No, it's a it's it's a massive change in in remembrance. The 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 only thing I have. Uh, I would say that it's negative for McCoy's performance as such is, and it's said by a lot of people, that they sort of, he, he doesn't do the angry acting very well. Ghost light. Yes. Uh, and even the, even the, the, the speech to, to, to Davros, uh, I know some people quite like that, but the bit where he starts going on about unlimited rice pudding, uh, I mean, he didn't write the script, obviously, but it's just the delivery that sort of it loses me a little bit there. But as for the rest of it, I mean, there's that famous famous or famed scene in the cafe where he's sort of a more quiet, contemplative uh, portrayal. Um, I, you know, you, you can respond to that sort of thing. I mean, especially after the sort of the bombast of the, of the Baker years, um, you, a, a more quieter, measured performance is, is, is one that I, I find... I mean, it's certainly sympathetic to, to him as an actor, I think. And uh, it certainly it, it helps the portrayal or what they were trying to do with a sort of a more darker... A more darker doctor, sort of, sort of trying to come to terms with the decisions that he has to make, and I think also putting him in into a costume where it doesn't smack you in the face, although the the pullover is a is a no no is a big is a big mistake. And the costume that McCoy wore in the TV movie, for example, was just looked apart for me. You know, in those mm-hmm. five or ten minutes in the TV movie, 
he just looked at. He actually, I felt like he got there and then he was killed off. <laughs> yes, well, it's essentially a voiceless. It's uh, a voiceless portrayal. He doesn't say much. I mean, it's a pretty good. It's a pretty good performance. I mean, given that he has to carry the first ten or fifteen minutes of the story and he's not really allowed to say anything, he 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 does he does carry it off. Now, having him in it, I think, is a mistake. Look, I think the whole the TV movie, the discussion about the TV movie is another podcast itself. But I think the the TV movie was basically cursed from from from, from the beginning. It was never really going to be commissioned as an ongoing series in America. It just there was no essentially corporate memory of the show in the states. Uh, and if it wasn't going to be picked up by the Yanks and half their you know and they were going to comp- comp- chip in half the money, then the Brits weren't going to pick it up despite the fact that it pulled in just a touch over 9 million viewers uh, in 1996. So, I mean, I think that having the Seventh Doctor in there cripples an already crippled production. But for those of us who, who enjoy the continuity aspect of the show, the canonicity, having McCoy there, you know, gives McGann cred as, uh, again, air quotes, legitimate uh, Doctor. So, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I like it from that. And, and the performance itself is pretty good. And I was actually upset to see him go. And especially in that way, it was very traumatic. Welcome to the 90s. Yeah, exactly. Well, in a hail of bullets. Well, I mean, it might as well have been written by Sayward, really. I think it was. <laughs> Secretly. <laughs> Secretly. Jeff, what was his name? Matthew Jacobs. Yeah. That is a podcast in itself, like the TV movie. But what about your, your thoughts on McCoy and his performance? Did you see the character change over time? And where does he rate in your top 10 of, or top 11 do- of the Doctors? Look, McCoy is, I think, a little bit unfairly maligned because of perceptions at the time about J&T, about what fans, I mean, a lot of vocal fans had... I mean, it didn't really percolate out into the viewing public. The viewing public had made up their mind about the show. They, it just The show was no longer something that, you know... Essential viewing. Essential viewing. Mm. It, had, it, had, it had stopped basically being essential viewing once Davison left. And the cancellation just, you know, further killed it off. But McCoy is um, maligned in part because, you know, his first season was largely indifferent and if not outright terrible. Uh, there was a lot of hate towards J&T because of the cancellation and because they thought that he'd stayed on too long and, you know, because fans got together and sort of that was it. They'd, they'd made their mind up about him and no matter what he did... Um, it was crap. It was, it, was, it was crap and McCoy was collateral damage in that. Mm. I... Th- it's, and it's, as a fan, it's hard to be objective about what you think about his performance because it's always coloured by, and you know, of fans like of our vintage. I mean, you, you sort of grew up in the 80s and 90s when DWB were vilifying the show, were vilifying J&T, were saying that McCoy was the worst, was the worst actor to play the role ever. Um, but if you look at the sh- if you look at the progression of the show from Tom and Lorani up to to Survival, and you see where Cartmel comes in and the changes begin to take shape, and McCoy is given more direction. And the productions become more in line with what the scripts were trying to hope to portray. And sure, some you know some stories like Silver Nemesis are a step backwards, but it was I think it was you know two or three steps forward and, and the occasional step backward. So by the time we got to Survival, I think that season McCoy is, is fully in command more or less, and he gives a really I think he gives a really good portrayal, and he's, he's helped by having you know Sophie Aldred who is at that stage is a halfway decent actress and the story's picked up and and his portrayal matched those stories so I think by the end of it uh, having watched them some of them again uh, I don't think McCoy I mean the two titans of the classic series are Trout and Baker for me and uh, and I don't think McCoy but I don't think McCoy is at the bottom of the rung but he's certainly I mean he's 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 of the first oh well if we're talking about the, the you know 11 Doctors I'd put him up I put him ahead of. Uh, I put him eighth or ninth, and who the three are, the two are beneath him. I'm not going to say, and who are the ones above him, I, I won't say. When we went into this exercise, we wanted to try and readdress our perceptions of the McCoy era. Do you think that's been successful, Rob? Yeah, I've had a complete reevaluation. Mm. I've I've had a. I mean, I, having watched some stories uh, in their in their broadcast uh, order, um, I've had a I've had a complete reevaluation. And yes, I you, you can acknowledge the weaknesses in the in in, in the series at that point. But, you know, I think there's a lot to like there, actually. There's a lot to like. And I, I'm actually going to, once I get my, um, uh, just get some time, I, I intend watching Happiness Patrol and, and, and watching the rest of the season, uh, rest of the uh, the era, because I think there's a lot to like 
especially in the latter half of it. I'll be sending you copies of Time and the Riding in Paradise Towers, Rob. You're not going to get out of it again. Are you my friend? <laughs> Are you my friend? <laughs> friend. <laughs> the McCoy year has been a, always been a mixed bag for me. If I can get past that first year, which I do now acknowledge has some fairly interesting ideas in terms of Paradise Towers and Dragonfire, it's a, as you said, the execution leaves me... Uh, leaves me cold stone cold actually that's been a great thing i suppose about the dvds coming out is that you you've had time away from them to reassess them like i didn't really hold greater show in much regard but when i got the dvd and i I thoroughly loved it i thought it was fantastic and i think also as you get older you know your views on things change there's a lot to enjoy in there now um but some things still don't work for me and that's that's just me but i think in terms of the three years definitely lots of great ideas in there execution doesn't pay off and i think again it's a miracle that we actually got those three years mm. really um and uh, and his performance in the tv movie was a nice little coda exactly exactly it's just a, it's just a pity that we didn't get another one or two years just to just to crystallize what they were trying to do So, Rob, have you been watching any Who recently? Well, other than the McCoy stuff, I um, the a- ABC here in Australia on its uh, one of its digital channels is um, screening nightly episodes of the new series in the lead up to uh, the 50th anniversary. They seem to be on a continuous loop. Yes. Well, I mean, it's one of those digital channels where it's either they put in uh, advertisements ad nauseum or they, um, you know, they actually screen something. So they've got to fill the hours up with something. Well, I watched it for probably about 10 or 15 minutes. There was the last 10 or 15 minutes, I think. Mm. Uh, I, I saw the start of it where the uh, one of the, uh, the astronauts uh, is turned into the water dribbling monster. And I had my, my children with me. And um, as the camera got closer and closer to the character whose back was to it, I said to them, um, you might want to turn away for at this point because it's not a good look. So they duly did, and uh, it was a nice piece of makeup. I'm not quite sure why. I'd have to watch the story again to see why, the, why, the, why he's dribbling water, or gushing water, really. And then I watched the last 10 or 15 minutes, and it was... Um, I'd have to... I, the, the, that year of the specials, uh, not a high point in Tennant's tenure, as, we've, as a lot of people believe, and I agree, he stayed one year too long. Or the specials year was just a bad idea to begin with yeah no it was a, a bit helter-skelter-ish though that last the last five minutes in the snow out the front of that woman's house uh where she is horrified by the fact that the doctor is quite happy to change time and i mean that that, that bit where the doctor sort of realizes that he can do whatever he wants you know the time lord victorious thing that's wonderful if that had been had been sort of you know led or trailed up to that point but my memory is it actually just the idea seems to occur to him in the last five minutes that he can he can change time to suit his own 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 requirements and nobody's going to pull him up on it anymore and you know then she blows her brains out mm. but what's the point of, what's the point of of doing that and then then next up you've you've killed the character off you've killed you know tenant tenants leaving you that should if if you're going to have a year of specials make him special you know, Make them special and make them... Um, you lead up to that point so it feels natural and not forced. And it felt very forced at that time. And I think it's a, it's an opportunity missed. Because it's a bit like we were talking before about McCoy and the, the so-called Dark Doctor. At least they built up to that. And unfortunately, there wasn't really a payoff in, 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 season, in a season 27, a putative season 27. But there could have been with, with this... And the, this timely victorious idea is, is a lot similar to the Dark Doctor, the manipulative Doctor... But there's no there's no lead up and there's and there's no real payoff and then it's the end of time. I mean, just merely mentioning the end of time just fills me with horror. Uh, the end of taste. Can we change it to that? Can we call it the end of taste? The end of reason. The end of reason. End of sanity. It was just awful. Bloody awful. It's your rants with Delta and the Batman. I can just apply again to Silver Nemesis and End of Time. It's the rant that keeps on giving. Omni rant. The Omni rant. It's the Omni rant. So, Mark, apart from the McCoy stories that we gave each other to watch, what have you been doing uh, Doctor Who related? I watched Terror of the Zygons. Oh, you've got it. The new spanking uh, edition of it. What did you think? I loved it. Did it, take you, did it take you back to tea time in the 1970s? All over again. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. They've done a really good job on the DVD, actually, this time. I haven't been overly impressed with a lot of the extras that have... Uh, 
come out on more recent efforts. But this was a really good return to form. The missing scene that they they found and restored to the episode. So that was originally black and white and they've hand coloured it, have they? Uh, a mixture of black and white and really washed out colour. And the guy who did the Mind of Evil restoration, uh, sort of the colourisation... Stuart Humphreys. Uh, Stuart Humphreys, a.k.a. Babelfish. Well, no, a.k.a. Babel Colour. Babel Colour. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, 10.20 at night, people. Give me a break. And Daylight Savings has kicked in, so it's really 9.20. They mag- time magically jumped forward an hour this morning, people, while we slept. Yeah, Stuart Humphreys did a great job. Purposely kept away from watching that story for quite a while, because I knew it was going to come out on DVD eventually. I'm really glad I waited. Tom Baker, top of his game. List laid. Ian Martyr's so underrated, it's not funny. Oh, it's it's, it's tragic that he's sort of... Wow. No, he's, he's slipped a little behind the furniture sort of thing, but Ian Martyr is a companion. Mm. He, he is... Uh, yeah, you're right. He's um, that, that that team is a great team. It's season 12, isn't it? Season It's season 13. It was actually filmed as part of season 12. But um, oh, yes. I had the misfortune of seeing the Smurfs 2 the day before. And uh, Terror of the Zygons really reaffirmed my uh, hope in society. Things you do as a parent. There's a cover quote for the DVD. As recommended by 42 Dreams to Take podcast. Much better than this first two. Now, I'm looking forward to, uh, to Terror of the Zygons. Uh, I have fond memories of reading the novelisation back in high school. So, And, of course, seeing it on television. Uh, and the Zygons, of course, uh, well, one at least is featuring in the uh, spoilers' fiftieth anniversary, allegedly. Yes, um, it, look, it looks like that one looks like he's been on steroids or something. Bit bulked up. He's been down the gym. He's been down the twenty-four gym. Yeah, it looks like he's been eating too much anyway. A roided up Zygon. Yeah, I reckon uh, Tennant said, "Look, I'll come and do your fiftieth anniversary. Put the Zygons in for me because they're his favourite monster." Oh, really? Yeah. The things I don't know. What sort of fan am I? <laughs> Let's not answer that. Send us your answer on Twitter. Yes. Please tweet us. Please tweet us. Yeah. Um, apart from that, that's really who you are. Finish off season two of Breaking Bad and working my way through series two of West Wing. Oh, now there's some quality. You can contact us on 42to-doomsday at gmail.com. You can tweet us at 42to-doomsday. Or you can get us at our blog, 42to-doomsday.wordpress.com. Until then, I've been Mark. And I've definitely been Robert. Goodbye. <laughs>